0: welcome to the charles cw cook podcast episode 11 it's now officially christmas i know this because my wife decided it was officially christmas about seven seconds after thanksgiving ended And we went out to get a Christmas tree, which is now decorated and lit up in our family room. I will wait a little bit, though, to do an episode that is Christmas-themed, because for now, I want to complain a bit. So here's my question. Is the Republican Party tired of losing yet? Let me just throw some numbers around. Numbers from the state of Georgia where Herschel Walker just lost his race for the U.S. Senate to Raphael Warnock. These numbers are all publicly available, but I got these from Ryan Matsumoto. I also put them up on the corner at National Review. This year, the Republican candidate for governor in Georgia won by eight points. The Republican candidate for Lieutenant Governor won by 5 points. The Republican candidate for Secretary of State won by 9 points. The Republican candidate for Attorney General won by 5 points. The Republican candidate for Agriculture Commissioner won by 8 points. The Republican candidate for Insurance Commissioner also won by 8 points as did the Republican candidate for state school superintendent, who won by 8 points. The Republican candidate for commissioner of labor won by 7 points. To Georgia's state house of representatives, voters sent 103 Republicans and 76 Democrats. To the state senate, voters sent 34 Republicans and 22 Democrats. And the Republican candidate for Senate in Georgia lost by 2.4
1: points. Why? Because he was terrible. Now, As I said in
0: a previous podcast, I knew this a few months ago, and then I got caught up in the historical comparisons and I forgot it. I got the election wrong too. So this is not a told you so. It's more of a, will we please look at what's staring us in the face? Republicans win when their candidates are palatable. Boring, even. They lose when their candidates were chosen from the cast of the monsters. For all the criticisms that I hear leveled at him, generic Republican is the single most effective fighting force in modern American political history. More often than not, generic Republican wins. Tim Burton, Republican? Not so much. I don't know how much clearer this could be now. Donald Trump got 46% of the vote in 2016 against a candidate who was less popular than shingles. Then he lost, and everything he touched withered and died. Dr. Oz lost, Blake Masters lost, Don Baldock, lost, Herschel Walker lost. The electorate in this cycle was, as it turned out, really Republican. The environment was, as it turned out, really Republican. Joe Biden's still unpopular. Most Americans still say that the country's on the wrong track. But all of those Republican candidates lost nevertheless. And the normal candidates, the DeSantis's and the Rubio's and the Kemp's and the DeWine's and the Kimberly Yee's and the Glenn Youngkin's and the Greg Abbott's, they won. Usually by a lot. Now, there were a few exceptions to this, of course. J.D. Vance, who's neither a generic Republican nor a Tim Burton Republican, managed to split the difference. He won, but he did so by 17 fewer percentage points than the gubernatorial candidate in his state. Ron Johnson won in Wisconsin, although he's really not as unusual as the press likes to think. And besides, he was running against a terrible candidate himself. And Adam Laxalt, who was fairly mainstream, but not a particularly good candidate, lost in Nevada. But in the high-profile races, Republicans got what they should have expected. Now, I assume, and if my inbox is any indication, this will be the case, that there will be some people listening to this who will think that the dividing line that I'm drawing is ideological. That when I say generic Republican, I mean rhino or squish. And that when I say Tim Burton Republican, I mean hardcore conservative fighter. But that is nonsense. Ron DeSantis won in Florida by 20 points. Is he unconservative? Brian Kemp won in Georgia by 8. Is he unconservative? And what about those who lost? Was Dr. Oz a model of soundness? Was Herschel Walker the great communicator of his generation? There's just no obvious dividing line here, other than obviously good candidate, and obviously bad candidate. And my proposition is simple. The Republican Party should pick obviously good candidates as its nominees so that it doesn't put off the moderates and the independents. Because the truth is that being a conservative is not a deal-breaker for persuadable centre-right voters. But being a freak is. Voters in Georgia did not consider Brian Kemp's six-week abortion ban to be a deal-breaker. They did consider Herschel Walker's litany of troubles to be so. So we get a 10-point difference between the results. All too often, there is this tendency on the right to assume that if someone is annoying the media, or even annoying the public, that they must be ipso facto worthwhile. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes to make big changes, you have to have bruising public fights. And often, it's worth taking the slings and arrows in exchange for moving the ball, if you'll forgive the mixed metaphor. But it is never, ever worth taking slings and arrows in exchange for nothing at all. It is never, if I could torture the Shakespearean reference while mixing my metaphors, worth taking arms against a sea of ghosts. Something I've noticed about Governor DeSantis living here in Florida is that most of the time, he's quiet. Many Americans, of course, have seen those viral clips of DeSantis calling out this or that or fighting with the press corps, but What they don't instinctively understand because they don't live here and because they, as a result, don't watch local news is that those are the exceptions rather than the rule. Those clips are out there because DeSantis wants them to be out there. They represent the fights in which he wishes to engage, but the rest of the time he's either quiet or he's doing something that is wholly uncontroversial a supermajority. Something like signing a bill that makes it easier for veterans to find jobs in the state government. He did that near where I live recently. Or speaking at the opening of a new American Legion center, or cleaning up after a hurricane, or announcing a $50 million grant to save the lives of manatees. When the fights erupt, It's because he's chosen to spend some of his political capital on them, not because he's bored on a Tuesday or because he's so intrinsically controversial and unusual that lightning finds its way inevitably toward the spike in his head. And that is a good thing, it is not a bad thing. That's what being a good politician looks like. They do their jobs. They dig in when it's necessary, and they get re-elected so they can do the same things over and over again. Obviously, I would not vote for Raphael Warnock or Mark Kelly if I were being waterboarded. But they did understand that in a way that the Trump-backed candidates that were up against them did not. And now they're US senators for the next six years with all that that entails. Trump and the candidates that he has advanced do not understand that, and nor, I'm afraid, do many of the people who voted for them in the primary. Inflation is higher than it's been in 40 years. The debt is unsustainable, crime is up, there's nonsense being taught in the universities and schools, interest rates, which have gone up as a result of inflation, are making it hard to to buy homes. We may be headed for a recession. And too many Republican primary voters are thinking about loyalty to Donald Trump and about the 2020 election and about the supposed perfidy of figures such as Mitch McConnell. And the rest of the country is sitting there saying, what are you doing, you weirdos? There's this conception out there, I think, among primary voters in the Republican Party that it's somehow frivolous for normal voters to reject kooky candidates. I hear this all the time, this complaint that voters were more bothered by mean tweets than by high gas prices, leaving aside that mean tweets is a stand-in for all manner of genuinely objectionable behavior. It's not frivolous at all. And even if it were... It doesn't especially matter because you can't tell other people what to care about or how to vote. Most people do not spend their days wildly suggesting that the last election was stolen and that if it comes to it, the Constitution can be terminated to address it. Most people do not spend their days thinking about whether Joe Scarborough killed an intern. Most people do not have dinner with ghastly little fascists like Nick Fuentes. And most successful political candidates, the people who win and then achieve things, did not spend decades selling fake supplements, or put a handgun to their wife's head, or make creepy Jeffrey Dahmer-esque political commercials in the middle of the Arizona desert. This is up to the GOP. We've now lived through three elections in a row in which the Republicans lost, even in highly favorable circumstances, because people found too many of their candidates unacceptable and because Donald Trump loomed over the proceedings like a banshee. Do Republicans want to do this going forward? In 2024, that's just two years away, less than two years away, the election, American voters will get the chance to change control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency. Do Republicans want to wake up on the morning after the election to more headlines explaining that while the electorate did not like the president or his party or the direction of the country, independents and moderates leaned towards him anyway because the alternative was unpalatable? Or do they want to break that cycle? That's a genuine question, not a rhetorical question. I'm honestly not sure of the answer. I still see far too many excuses for what happened in 2022 and 2020, for that matter, and 2018. It was this, it was that, it was the other. Nope. It was the GOP's own choices. This was a suicide, it was not a murder. And Republicans have about a year to prevent the next one. Well, last week I had Michael Brendan Dougherty onto this podcast to tell me why I'm wrong about gay marriage from the right. And this week, my friend Steve Morris, who's a filmmaker, the co host of the Cinephiles podcast, also the co host of the Enterprise Incidents podcast emailed me, and he asked me if he could come on and tell me why I'm wrong about gay marriage from the left. So I'm getting it from both sides. And I said, yes, of course. And Steve is here. So welcome, Steve.
1: Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And second of all, I think having people come in to particularly tell you you're wrong is kind of a a strange masochistic position.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm a strange masochistic person, Steve. So Seems appropriate.
1: Well, I, I think first of all, you're right because you have always and vocally said you were not opposed to gay marriage. And of course, that's the position that I hold. Where where I got frustrated in listening to your conversation is I feel like sometimes we're avoiding talking about what the real point is, which is why is it important? Why is it important that gay people should have the right to marry fully equally with everybody else? And I think the big thing we don't talk about enough is that love, romantic love, is so central to almost everything in our culture. And the idea of marriage is one of the great milestones of life. And so by saying, well, you can be gay, but you can't have this, or even lessening the the significance of a gay marriage means that you are making saying that they're less than human on some really fundamental level. So where
0: do we disagree? Because I am in favor of gay marriage. I didn't make exactly the argument you just made, but, but I did in the sense that I think we've always had gay people. And I think there is an instinct in people to love one other person, uh, whether that's of the same sex or not. And I'm fine with the government reflecting that if it uh, wishes to. Is it the if it wishes to part that you object to?
1: Yes, I think it... Well, I, I suppose it goes into how we frame what it is to be gay. And I think, and, and maybe some of this is me reacting as much to the, the more general conservative attitudes, and particularly the more general religious right attitudes towards gay marriage, rather than your specific positions. But I do think throughout our culture, and particularly at this moment, there's this tremendous pushback to something that I felt we've made tremendous progress to, which is the idea that it's actually okay to be gay. And in a lot of places in this country right now, there are more and more people saying in more and more ways that, no, it isn't actually okay.
0: So in what sense do you object to that? Because there's obviously a tension here. I don't want to put words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong. But like me, you are a small-l liberal on, say, free speech. Yes. And as a result, you're a pluralist. At least you're a pluralist when it comes to freedom of expression. So... Let's say we have somebody who is not like me, uh, an atheist heathen, uh, but...
1: <laughs> and like is, me, is actually an atheist heathen.
0: Right, but, but is a devout Christian or Muslim or whatever. And they object to this deeply. And they say so. How do you reconcile the need to respect that with it obviously irritating you?
1: Well first of all, they're welcome to have their opinion and they, and I'm welcome to be irritated. So that's the, the first spot. But the second spot is, you know, I, I literally was just listening, I think it was this morning, to the Daily on the New York Times talking about taking books out of libraries because they represented elements of a gay lifestyle and you didn't want kids reading those. And to me, like the contradiction between it's okay for me to a straight kid to read something of a sexually explicit nature when I'm 15 and a gay kid can't read something that's about something that represents their lives. Well, that is where we're bringing things into the public space and affecting someone privately having an opinion that they don't think being gay is right. Well, that's privately their opinion, but someone preventing a young kid from reading material that might help him in the process of figuring out who he is. Well, that's moving into other people's spaces, and that's where I start to have a problem with it.
0: What about removing books, which is, of course, not censorship? Choosing which books to teach or include in a school library is a separate issue from censorship. What about removing books from school libraries that are sexually explicit per se? So not just books that are sexually explicit in, say, homosexual depictions, but heterosexual depictions too.
1: So... I have two different feelings about that. One is in general, and I think in general you tend to agree, is I think getting rid of books is a bad idea. I think people should have the right to read a bunch of weird stuff that other people think is offensive or gross, and that's what they want to read. And I personally have benefited a lot from reading and experiencing a bunch of things that I didn't necessarily love or like, but I still benefited from having that intellectual or emotional experience. That's the first thought. But the second thing is, it, you know, we get into this weird separate but equal thing. It's like, okay, if you said all sexually explicit material that has this kind of thing, whether it's straight or gay, should be removed from these level of age groups, I would go, you know what? You were doing that fairly. You're saying the issue is that kids shouldn't be exposed to sexual material. But if you'll only say that gay sexual material can be removed or any mention of things being gay, well, then I have a real big problem with it because you get back to this fundamental question of whether or not is it okay to be gay. And if it's okay to be gay and whatever is okay for us to talk about with straight people should be okay with us to talk about with gay people.
0: And what would you do about it? Because school boards tend to be local, they tend to be run by parents, they tend to be informed by state legislatures, and to some extent they're going to reflect a diverse country where in some parts you've got a great welcoming and celebration of gay people, and in other parts you don't.
1: I think... What's happening right now with school boards is really weird. Having a, a mom who served on school boards almost the entire time I was in school, I know that you've got these people that are, you know, it's not like they're making money working on the school board. It's that they're dedicated to helping out in their communities with kids. And the fact that it's been politicized to this degree that people are getting death threats for being on a school board or their jobs threatened and things like that, that's we've gone to a real weird place. I don't think that liberal schools are perfect, like the one that my son goes to. In fact, I can tell you for certain that they're not. They're muddling through just like everyone else, and I think the same is true in a conservative school. But what I do think is that having an idea of, like, this one thing offends me and therefore must be destroyed is not how schools are supposed to work.
0: All right, so let's go back to gay marriage and try and reconcile some of these issues. I said on the podcast that you listen to, and I wrote about this as well, that the reason I would have voted against the Respect for Marriage Act is that it didn't include enough protections of conscience and religious liberty rights. And as such, I don't think that it did what it should have done and what every law in the United States should do. In my view, this isn't limited to gay marriage, which is balance government acting in a particular way uh, with accommodations for the dissenters. How much room do you think the federal government and state governments should create for those who dissent from gay marriage?
1: So I think that in general, you know, slippery slope arguments are a logical fallacy, is that in general, that's not usually a good way to make an argument. But I do have some sympathy for the idea that trying to force somebody to express a thing that isn't the thing that they believe is kind of weird and feels weird. And I, as a writer, certainly don't want to be forced to write a thing that I don't believe in. That doesn't seem like a right thing. But I also think that we tend to argue around edge cases. We tend to argue around these exe- extreme examples that make us feel kind of crappy. So we go like, oh, yeah, it does feel kind of weird for a web designer who doesn't believe in gay marriage to have to design an, a website for gay marriage. That feels that, that feels weird. I get that. I re- I genuinely do. But that doesn't compare to me to the idea of not allowing gay marriage. So if you go, well, I'm not going to vote for this law because it doesn't have enough protections for that web designer. And therefore, I'm n- not going to give protections to the you know millions of Americans who want to love and cherish each other for the rest of their lives, which to me is a societal good. Well, then I got to not worry so much about the edge case and really worry about how am I protecting the love and the relationships of millions of Americans?
0: So I would say a couple of things on that. The first one is that the law that was passed was mostly superfluous because I think incorrectly the Supreme Court had already mandated the recognition of gay marriage at both the federal and state levels. And so if I were in a situation as a lawmaker making that call, I wouldn't really have been weighing gay marriage or not gay marriage against the religious liberty protections. I would have been weighing a superfluous law with the religious liberty protections.
1: Well, hold on, hold on because you and I, one of the places I know that you and I agree is that both you and I agree, agree that the legislature has become increasingly uh, weak, while the executive branch and the judiciary has become disproportionately strong. And we yeah. want the, legis- both you and I want the legislature to be more active in making decisions rather than leaving these things to the courts. And so saying that this was superfluous, particularly in a time after Roe has been overturned, seems to me to be the opposite point. It's like, no, this is what I want Congress to do. I want them to decide this so that it doesn't get left to the court.
0: Right, exactly. But what we're talking about here is two issues that have already been decided whether correctly or not by the court that were then put to legislators. Now, I would much prefer that... The federal government and all 50 states recognized gay marriage and that the judicial philosophies and precedents and rubrics that were used to push gay marriage on the states that didn't want to do it in the Obergefell decision were nuked from space. Because I think they're wrong, even if I, in this case, like the outcome. But that didn't happen. And so what I'm saying is that when you're a legislator, which I'm not, you have two questions before you. You have, what do I do about gay marriage and what do I do about religious liberty protections? Now, at the moment, the answer seems to be, and you and I agree on this, well, what we'll do is we'll leave gay marriage to the courts and we'll leave religious liberty to the courts. Most of the action in both of those areas in the last few years has been judicial, In this case, the federal government took it up, partly because they were worried that the judicial underpinnings would go away. I think that lawmakers in that circumstance have just as much of a responsibility to write in the sorts of religious liberty and conscience protections that they and many people in America desire as they do to recognize gay marriage. I think it was an abdication of responsibility not to add them in as well. I think it was anti-pluralist not to add them in. So I understand that you would probably tip the scales a little bit differently. But I just, I don't think, well, what about a burger fell is a good argument. But I don't think, well, what about the First Amendment is a good argument as well. I, I agree with you. I think lawmakers have a responsibility to do both. And my objection to this law is they didn't.
1: Yeah, again, it goes to, I don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good. To me, to me, the issue of gay marriage is so important, and the threats to gay marriage seem more and more real. As much as I agree with Obergefell, which I know you don't, the the fact is is that there is a movement to stop it and to overturn it, and there are places where gay marriage in this country is not respected at all, and a lot of people that don't believe in it, and I see that as a real threat. And so, while I wouldn't particularly fight hard to force people to you know, create a gay website to use that example. I also, you know, don't think that that's a major issue. I don't think there are a lot of gay couples going to very Christian web designers and trying to force them to make their websites. I don't think that's happening a lot. But I do think that a lot of gay couples want to get married and live their lives as equally as any other married couple in the country.
0: But of course, that does cut both ways, because the fact that there aren't swathes of gay couples who are trying to get a cake made in Colorado or wedding photographer, or in this case, a website is precisely why it seems so odd to me that there is this concerted attempt to make those people comply against their conscience. I consider it a much greater problem than, than you do, I think. I understand totally why the federal government in the 1960s decided that it was going to break with tradition and arguably with the constitution and passed the civil rights act that applied not just to public actors but to private actors and the reason for that was that if you were black in many parts of this country you were not just locked out of one bakery or one photography service you were locked out of all of them and although it is an imperfect analogy the idea of there being parts of major cities, sometimes whole cities, in which American citizens could not engage in commerce was in some way approximate to the logic underneath the regulation of monopolies and public accommodations. The idea behind our public accommodation laws that preexisted the Civil Rights Act was that there are some businesses and there are some places that really aren't subject to market forces. If you're the only inn on a 30-mile stretch and someone arrives in the middle of the night and it's raining, there are consequences to your turning them away. Likewise, if you're the only barge operator over an important river or you're an airport in a major city, and so on and so forth. And so although it wasn't a perfect analogy, I totally understand why people said, look, we have no way Uh, for a large number of people in this country to engage in the economy. I just don't see that being remotely equivalent to where we are now. Uh, And in fact, if you look at elite culture, we have the opposite. I happen to be a pro-gay conservative. But if I weren't, and I said this out loud... I would pay a price for it. I would not be celebrated. I would not be quietly indulged by a majority. I would pay a price for it. I would find it hard to get a job in academia and corporate America. I would perhaps find myself in trouble at work. And I, as a result, do consider that the protections we're talking about are really, truly important.
1: It's it's tough because I think the slippery slope arguments go both ways because I, of course, agree with you because we've you know emailed back and forth about I'm concerned about the fact that we don't have enough room for people to have opinions that we strongly disagree with and not feel that they should be fired and destroyed. I don't think people should be destroyed for believing things, even things that I think are pretty heinous. But. On the other hand, there are very clear movements, and I mentioned one already in terms of library books and definitely at schools, where even though I would say that, no, there is nothing like that black family driving across the country who has to look at the sundowner rules and look at their you know, green book to figure out where they can stop and use a bathroom. I, I agree, that's not happening. But I also agree that there are kids who are really struggling with their identity or with their sexual orientation who need help and are in places where their teachers, maybe who are gay, who could talk to them, who could relate to them and help them through these times where kids are facing, particularly kids in high school, where the rates of suicide are super high, where the, the abuse is high, where people are assaulted for identity and for sexual orientation, and that our systems need, can back those people up. And those are real issues. And so as we, yeah, we go like, okay, maybe this web designer thing is, you know, I think that's kind of an edge case. But I don't think school books and libraries are are edge cases. I don't think teachers being able to display their own identity and who they are and who they're married to and who they love, which I think is all totally fine. And if a straight person can do that, then the fact that a gay couple has to be concerned about that, for me, is a real big problem. All right,
0: so let's talk a bit about Obergefell, which you said you supported. I don't support it because I think it's not true. And I think when it comes to the law this matters enormously. For example, it is nice for me that my personal views on free speech are basically in line with the US Constitution. That is a fortunate development for me. Yes. Because as, as well as making my own case for free speech, I can just point to the Constitution and say, well, it's the highest law in the land, and I can go to the Supreme Court if necessary, and I can say, please endorse my conception of free speech. But it is simply not the case that that nice little synergy exists everywhere within my political worldview. For example, I'm against the death penalty. I've written against the death penalty for years. I also think that the vast majority of the Supreme Court's jurisprudence on the death penalty is nonsense. I think it was contrived from whole cloth. I think it has nothing to do with the text or the historical understanding, and as a result, it really annoys me, even though in the vast majority of cases, it actually yields the political outcome that I would like. I mention this because it would be much easier for me in this case if I thought that Obergefell and Windsor had been correctly decided. I would not only be able to say, I personally think that gay marriage is a worthy endeavor, but... The Supreme Court has reflected the Constitution, highest law in the land, and I'm right. I just don't believe that. So, I'm
1: assuming that you do. Well, I'm not an originalist. So, this is a place where you and I do disagree. I think that there... I think that consulting the framers and who was around at the time that whatever amendment was passed or whatever law was passed is, should absolutely be part of the process. I just don't think it makes sense for it to be the only part of the process. I think that, you know, one example would be women's rights. They're not in the constitution. And yet I think basically all of America at this point believes that in general, women should have equal rights to men, but it just doesn't exist. I mean, the only thing giving women rights in the Constitution, and I would defer to your knowledge as being greater than my own, is the 19th Amendment saying that they can vote. But there's nothing in the you know 14th, 15th Amendments that says that women should have equal rights to men. And the ERA fails. So we're left in this position of basically most of the country believing this thing and wanting to defend this thing, but really not having, in my opinion, real constitutional justification in terms of being an originalist to defend that thing. Now, I happen to believe that being gay is okay. And I think it's not just that I believe it, but I think it is a moral imperative to defend these people. And so, yes, I agree with you that, yeah, I cannot find anywhere that James Madison or Thomas Jefferson made it make sense that they would defend gay marriage because they wouldn't. But it needs defending. And sometimes I need my courts to do that. But on what basis should they... Defend it. I mean, we could go
0: down a rabbit hole on the women thing. I I disagree a little bit there in that there are some parts of the Constitution, you're right, that do not explicitly protect women's rights. But the Constitution doesn't refer to men, it refers to people. And even though women couldn't vote, they were not excluded, for example, from the First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, and so on. They were, they were included within that from the beginning. That was deliberate. It was plain in the text. It's what people meant. But, but this is a, a sideshow. Um, by what authority should the court issue those proclamations that you like, and in this case, I like? Is it public opinion? Is it the personal views of the judges? Is it... I mean, what... This is where I just get off the train, because to me, there is a massive problem per se with the idea of judicial review in a democracy, unless that judicial review is tied to another democratic process. What I mean by that is, I don't want to have some Iranian Revolutionary Council in the United States, where a majority of us get together and vote, and our legislators say, here's a law that we all like, and then the court comes in and says, but we don't like it, and knocks it down. Unless the law that is being used to knock down that democratic will has been passed by a majority itself, which of course the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and all the amendments have. And until they're changed they are in force, And the only way that I can reconcile that is to say, well, the original public meaning of those majoritarian laws has to stay the same. Otherwise, you're just handing judges the ability to promulgate their own opinions at the expense of the democratic process.
1: Well, this is where I, I would say, again, it goes back to you and I both wishing that our legislature was stronger. I also think if you went to those guys who framed the Constitution and said, listen, in 250 years, how many amendments do you think we're going to have? They wouldn't have predicted 27. They would have thought that we would have made a lot more changes by now. And I don't remember which Federalist paper it is where they talk about the amendment process and what their expectations are. But most of them didn't think that they got it perfect the first time because it was a whole bunch of complicated compromises. They did the best they can. And I also think that, you know, it's funny when you came on the cinephiles to talk about uh, the great Stephen Fierce film, The Queen one of the things I was asking you about was whether what it means for something to be constitutional in England. And you described that it means a very, very different thing. And I think to some degree, one of the disadvantages that we have is that we have a system that hasn't changed enough in order to deal with the modern problems that we face. And so, yes, I understand the contradiction you're saying that how do, what do we have judges decide based on? But the reality is, is that Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin weren't thinking about gay couples. They didn't know about them. They didn't understand what it meant to be gay. And they certainly didn't understand what our society was like. And so I think judges do have to have some more flexibility because I'm going to say it for the third time. I don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good. To say like, I can't find a constitutional justification to allow millions of people to love each other and cherish each other and support each other for their lives. well. I guess it's too bad. No, I don't accept it. I think that this is the right thing. And that sometimes we need the Supreme Court to stand up and say, this is what's right.
0: And I think that's why we have legislatures and an amendment process. Anyhow, I think this is where we disagree the most profoundly. But let's move on to the final topic, which is the future of this. What's your anticipation here? Do you think that the issue is going to disappear, that it's already disappearing, perhaps? I think I saw a poll the other day that showed 71% of Republicans were
1: fine with gay marriage. I think if you had asked me this question 15 years ago, I would have been way more pessimistic. I think recently there have been some pushbacks, I would call them, that have been very distressing, particularly with the rise of a certain brand of populism that, that I, I is, but I also think maybe those are the dying gasps because I think the cultural shift that has happened and, and largely I would, I am definitely not one to extol the virtues of the entertainment industry in Hollywood that I tend to work near also work adjacent to, because I think there are a lot of bad stuff about that. But what I will say is that you know, so many studies show that People's attitudes change based on who they live around and who they experience. And if they, you grow up around gay people or know gay people or have your neighbors be gay people, your attitudes towards them change really rapidly. And one of the advantages we've had lately is this is where those ideas, which maybe we'll disagree about, about representation have made a tremendous difference. And the influence of things like Will and Grace and Modern Family and seeing these images and going like, oh, gay couples are just couples. They're flawed and crazy and funny and sweet and all the same things as straight couples and seeing those things over and over again makes you go, Oh, I get it. This isn't really a problem. So I am hopeful. I do think that we're moving in the right direction, but I also think lots of times as with everything, you know, it's two steps forward and one step back and then sometimes four steps back and then you got to move forward a lot faster.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to end up being a fight primarily over minority rights. And in this case, the minority rights will be the dissenters. I think that the objection to gay marriage is going to go away. Yeah, I think that there is a, or was, a mistaken assumption that gay marriage was akin to, say, abortion. And this runs both ways. I think sometimes... People on the right thought that gay marriage would be like abortion and it would stick around and animate people for a long time to come. And I think people on the left sometimes thought, well, abortion will go away because gay marriage, for example, largely has. And that's not going to happen because the gay marriage argument, irrespective of whether one is in favor or against it, can be made from a libertarian perspective. Abortion is a lot more difficult. Abortion involves a death and whether or not you know, you're pro-life or pro-choice, it, it, it matters more to people than I think gay marriage will
1: eventually. Obviously I could come on and we could have a whole other conversation about abortion. But what I will say is the, I think one of the main differences is, is that when you're talking about pro-life versus pro-choice, you're talking about two groups of people who are having entirely different conversations. Is that, in this sense, you have one group of people who is talking about whether or not a fetus is alive and protecting that life, and another group of people that are talking about women's rights, um, the economy, poverty, race, um, education, all these other issues, bodily autonomy, and those, and the other side isn't having that conversation. And so it's real tough to find any common ground or make any progress when two people are speaking entirely different languages.
0: So, Steve, where can people find you and what movie is the next episode of The Cinephiles covering?
1: So, uh, they can find me at SR Morris on Twitter. And The Cinephiles, we're literally just doing part two of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And we're going to go into our big holiday movie with It's a a Wonderful Life. And these are serious deep dives, as as Charlie, as you know from coming on the show, will often spend twice as long as the movie breaking down the whole movie in terms of its production, the filmmaking, the history, themes, and wherever the conversation takes us. So it's, it's a real deep dive. And the other one is Enterprise Incidents, where we're just finishing the original series. We just had William Shatner on the show. We've had directors of the original series. We've had actors from the series, writers from the series. It's been a real, again, very, very deep dive. So if you are a Star Trek fan, I highly recommend Enterprise Incidents.
0: You know, I've never seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I told you I was a movie idiot.
1: Um, it is a lot of a movie. That's (laughs) what I'll tell you. It is, it is a true seventies film and it is funny and difficult and crushing. And what was really interesting in our conversation is it's a lot about institutions versus the individual. And my very woke partner and I, we went way, way closer to the side of the institution than either of us thought we would.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I guess I should watch this movie. I know it's a classic. I have to wait for the kids to go to bed, though, I suppose. Not a kid movie. Not a kid movie. All right, Steve. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. For this week's color supplement, do make sure you turn your phones on to color mode. I have Dan McLaughlin, who writes at National Review, and who joined me, in fact, on the very first ever episode of the Charles C. W. Cook podcast to talk about Aaron Judge, and in a roundabout way, that's what we're going to talk about today. Welcome back to the podcast, Dan.
2: Glad to be here this time, not from a baggage carousel.
0: That's right. We had the delightful lady announcing the flights last time. She won't be joining us this week. So there is a quite extraordinary amount of money sloshing around at the moment in
2: baseball. Yeah, the owners are they're spending money like a, you know, drunken appropriator.
0: Exactly. So Aaron Judge got 360 million dollars and 9 years. How old is he? Uh what is Judge? I think he's about 30. Right. And that means he'll be paid a huge amount of money by the Yankees. When he's 39 years old, now that's probably not going to be a great deal for the Yankees on the back end, but they had to do it, right?
2: Yeah, they did. I mean, I think when you're, you know, the, we'll talk about a couple of these contracts that seem nuts, but it it always feels less nuts when you're giving that kind of money to keep somebody than to bring somebody in, because you know, there's a certain amount of goodwill that you have. And a certain amount of credibility you have, particularly when you are the Yankees, when you are the big, you know, the biggest money franchise in in sports that you have to have. It would simply be embarrassing after a guy has a year like Judge had to just let him walk. All right. So what is
0: this year like compared to previous years have we ever seen this much money being spent relative to inflation
2: yeah i mean i well and inflation is quite a thing isn't it i mean i think we have not seen a whole lot of years when the wallets were opening up quite this this wildly certainly there have been some years when there were giant names moving on the market for significant amount of money uh you know greg maddox and and Barry Bonds and A-Rod and whatnot, but just the, the, the sheer volume of really long, really big money contracts, uh, which only a few years ago, there was sort of a conventional wisdom that maybe teams had gotten burned too much by those deals and were walking away from them that people were watching the Angels suffer with Albert Pujols or watching, you know, big contracts to pitchers like Chan Ho Park blow up and Darren Dreifert blow up in teams' faces, Mike Hampton. You know, I think there was some conventional wisdom that between analytics and the end of the steroid era that the teams were just not going to invest as heavily in older players. And all that seems very much out the window right now. Now, why do you think that is? I think it says things, I mean, inflation is actually one part of the picture, right? That that teams are simply looking at the the situation and thinking, you know what, some of this money is going to be worth less at the end of these deals than it is right now. You know, I think clearly one thing that is happening is that very obviously the teams are looking at, you know, the economic situation of the game and they're feeling pretty bullish quite a bit more bullish than they sound when they're talking to the players in labor negotiations, or even (laughs) when they are, you know, wringing their hands about the future of the sport. You know, I mean, in a sense, there's, there's a little bit of a middle finger to the fans too, right? Because they keep doing all this stuff to kind of mutilate the game itself on the theory that it's financially necessary to keep expanding the playoffs and you know, sort of messing with the, the whole season, postseason balance and attempting to make cuts to the length of play in the game while doing nothing to cut the commercial breaks. So I think all of that picture, clearly the owners, when a push comes to shove, think that they're going to be making a lot of money over the next decade.
0: So why? What explains the discrepancy? I mean, unless you think the whole thing is cynicism, what explains the discrepancy between the amount of money that is being spent now, which you say illustrates perhaps a certain bullishness on the future of the sport, and the way in which baseball is talked about as this old, dying sport that needs to be made more exciting, that is shedding fans that can't survive into the future, including often from the owners themselves and their union negotiators.
2: Yeah, well, clearly when they're talking at the... the Collective bargaining table. They're just being purely cynical. Um, You know that's just that's just the way the game is. Uh, You know, and and it's not that the players are any less cynical, but but you know the owners the, the the players don't really have anything that they can hide, and the owners do. So, but clearly, you know, some of what's what's going on here is also, you know, you have some new players at the table. I mean, Steve Cohen with the Mets is willing to spend big money in ways that the Mets have not necessarily been doing in a while and that but the Phillies, I mean, you would not have expected the Phillies to put down three hundred million dollars. Three hundred and seventy two million dollars on Trey Turner and Taiwan Walker. All right, so what
0: are the biggest trades? Perhaps we should run through them. The biggest trades we've seen thus far.
2: Yeah, so you've got I mean judge nine years for three hundred and sixty million Turner's is 11 years for 300 million. Thander Bogarts is 11 years for 280 million. You've got Wilson Contreras five years, 87 and Jacob deGrom five years, 185 million. The Mets are replacing him with Justin Verlander. Who's only got a two year deal, but it's $86.7 million, which is not even their biggest signing of the offseason. They spent $102 million over five years on Edwin Diaz. Uh, Jose Abreu, who is not at all young, signed for three years uh, for fifty eight point five million with the Astros. I think he's like thirty six. Uh, the Red Sox just signed this guy uh, Yoshida from Japan. They gave five years, ninety million dollars, and uh, Jamison uh, Teon, however you pronounce his name, I can never remember it. Four years and sixty eight million with the Cubs. I mean, it's these are these are big, big, big contracts. There are some teams that
0: have. $85 million total cost for all their players.
2: Yeah, and, so, and and I mean, we have, you know, the luxury tax is not the most effective sort of revenue sharing mechanism, but clearly one thing it is effective at doing is convincing teams that if they're going to give somebody $300 million, they're more willing to stretch it out over a longer period of years, even if that means getting stuck with a guy on their roster is not any good anymore you know, rather than front load the deal and pay the luxury tax, right? So some of, this, some of the structure of these deals, the unreasonable length of them is just plain and simple tax evasion, Ta- taxes within the, you know, the game zone taxation system, not federal income taxes. Although, obviously, from the player's perspective, if you're going to get $300 million, you'd rather have it stretched out over longer for purposes of your federal state or, you know, God help us, Canadian taxes.
0: <laughs> so to what extent are we going to see players in Major League Baseball who are being paid an extraordinary amount of money but aren't really playing? I mean, what do you do? Suppose that you are the New York Yankees. You've made this commitment. Unlike in football, these contracts are guaranteed. And Aaron Judge theoretically is in his 38th, 39th year. He's a designated hitter and he's just not doing it. But you're paying him tens of millions of dollars that year. Do you just put him up as a talisman to sell shirts? Do you drop him? How does
2: that work? I mean, I think it depends how he performs, right? Because if if by, you know, sort of year eight of that contract, Judge has had a bunch of great years on the deal and he's still a beloved institution in the Bronx, then, yeah, you keep him around. Maybe you reduce him to a platoon player, um, you know, or you try to maybe work out some deal where you buy him out of the contract at some point. Although I think the, the, for various reasons, I think the union and the, and the agents kind of frown on that, but you know, if, if he's bad and he's getting booed and he's in the way, then you cut him and you eat the contract. I mean, I think the angels finally ate a small amount of the end of Pujols, contract, you know, but, but they, they, they kept wheeling him out there to play for years when he was no good, just because sort of like, well, why are we going to pay somebody else to do this job when we are already paying him a lot of money to do it badly? All right, last question. Do you think
0: that these numbers are going to go up and up and up? I ask because in soccer, when I was a kid, we saw the first million dollar transfer and then it was three and then it was ten and now it's a hundred. We've seen a great deal of money come into the sport, some of it from America, some of it from the Middle East, some of it from Russia. There are no luxury taxes in soccer. There's no NFL-style socialism, as people joke. It is what it is. Do you think that the pressure will be on to increase these sorts of contracts, or do you think that there'll be the same sort of backlash again that we saw before?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's cyclical in base it's more cyclical in baseball. Um I think you get these feeding frenzies and then there there we return to some periods of calm. I mean, clearly it's partly driven by just quite how many on the one hand quite how many very top quality players are on the market this year and on the other hand, look, part of this is the fact that that when when you change the structure of the game to allow more teams into the postseason, more teams think of themselves as being competitive and making the kind of money that comes with that. But, you know, yeah, I mean, look, I remember the first million dollar contract in baseball, which was Nolan Ryan. And that was, you know, when he signed with the the Astros before the 1980 season. So, you know, I mean, clearly the numbers are going to continue to go up, but I think, I, I don't think that we'll have this same kind of leaps and bounds upwards year in and year out, I think that will, it will continue to be cyclical. And then obviously it's all subject to if there are new developments in the collective bargaining world and whatnot that you know, change the economics later on. But under the current rules, I think that's probably where we are.
0: All right. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for coming on. I'll talk to you soon. All right. And now as promised, I will sing all 15 hours of Wagner's Ring Cycle, all four operas in Welsh.